Tonight we're moving into chapter 15 of our study of knowing God. And we're continuing to walk through some of the different attributes of God. And tonight we're talking about the wrath of God. Uh, we have already talked about the justice of God. And so this one is closely related, though uh, more directed toward the expression of the justice of God in terms of uh, wrath and judgment against sin. And one of the things he talks about at the beginning of the chapter is just how unpopular this doctrine is. It is, uh, in terms of the world at large, you know, people don't even want to think about the wrath of God. It's just dismissed out of hand. But even within Christianity, even within churches, uh, sometimes it's even denied. Or if it's accepted, it's not talked about very much. It's just one of those doctrines that's either denied or kind of pushed to the side. And he says, we do this to our own detriment uh, as believers in Christ and even in our witness to the world. He begins by just giving some definition to what we mean by the wrath of God. And he says, wrath is a deep, intense anger or indignation. Anger is a stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult. And that last aspect, even though this is kind of more of a secular definition of anger, that last aspect helps us understand to a certain degree the anger of God because God is the injured party, isn't he? God is the offended, insulted party. He, his holiness, his righteousness has been offended by sinful people. And then indignation is defined as a righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. And again, a secular definition of indignation, but notice the terms of righteousness and justice that are found in that definition. And that is at the root of God's expression of his wrath is his own righteousness, his own holiness, and his own sense of justice as the just and righteous God. And so wrath is really, some people define wrath as its own separate attribute. I think maybe a better way of understanding it to me is it's more of an expression of God's holiness and justice. And so it is the, the working out of those attributes of God, of his holiness, righteousness, and justice. And, and so he says, this doctrine, much like the justice of God, Either people deny it or it's really downplayed and we just kind of ignore it. But then he asked the question I thought was a very insightful question. And that is, has God's wrath against sin ever been a popular subject? This isn't just a modern problem, is it? When the prophets of the Old Testament came proclaiming God's judgment or wrath against sin, they weren't treated well, were they? Uh, many of God's prophets suffered persecution and punishment and death because they spoke the truth about the fact that God was going to judge his people because of their sin. And many of the kings and leaders of the day didn't want to hear it. And so really the wrath of God against sin has never been a popular subject. So that should not surprise us. But yet both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of it often. 
And I emphasize that both Testaments, both Old Testament and New Testament. We're not, we don't have two different gods. We have a God who is righteous always. We have a God who is just and holy always. We have a God who is indignant against sin always in both Old and New Testament. He quotes from A.W. Pink in the introduction to the chapter and says, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Now, that's not to say that this is a more important doctrine than God's love or his compassion, but really just to point us to the fact that this is an important doctrine in scripture that we shouldn't just deny or, or forget about. He points us to a couple of different passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. In Nahum, we have really a, a very strong and clear expression of the wrath of God. In Nahum chapter 1, it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? That doesn't mince any words. And then verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. If that sounds familiar, that's because it comes from Exodus 34. Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses and declares, Here is my name, the Lord, the Lord. It describes him as the merciful, compassionate, gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in mercy, forgiving sin and wickedness, but not leaving the guilty unpunished. So God's love and mercy towards sinners does not erase or throw out the fact that he is a righteous God who holds sinners accountable and will judge them in his righteous indignation. So the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. In verse 6, he says, Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But... With an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. There you see, even in that first chapter of Nahum, the opening verses, you see that God is both loving and gracious and merciful, but to those who love him and fear him and trust him and obey him. To those who are rebellious and idolatrous and wicked, God's wrath is against them. And that's a consistent message all the way through Scripture. Unless we think that that's just an Old Testament doctrine, he points us to 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament, which just as strongly talks about the wrath of God in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of history. He says, This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. There you see hope for those who are in Christ and have believed the gospel, but also a very clear declaration of judgment and wrath for those who don't know God and who have not obeyed the gospel. And so this is New Testament doctrine when Jesus Christ returns. So he says, clearly the theme of God's wrath is one about which the biblical writers feel no inhibitions whatever. Then he says, why then should we? Why, when the Bible is vocal about it, should we feel obliged to be silent? And his answer is we shouldn't. We, we should be clear where the Bible is clear. And then he goes on to describe what God's wrath is like. And in this section of the chapter, he's really wrestling with what he perceives to be some of the, the maybe core objections to this doctrine in Scripture. Why is it that people have... Um, kind of a, an instinctive reaction against this idea of God being a God who demonstrates wrath against sin. And he says one, one reason may be that this just doesn't seem to fit God. It, it, is this idea somehow unworthy of God? But the problem is, is that when people make this argument against the wrath of God, they have in mind human anger. They have in mind human wrath and rage. But there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between the way that God is angry at sin and the way that we demonstrate anger. So God's wrath is not like our wrath. He, uses, he makes the point that the biblical writers speak in anthropomorphic language, meaning that God's not a human being, but the Bible writers will sometimes describe him in ways like humanity in order for us to understand certain concepts of God. So it talks about God um, having arms sometimes, God having strength, God having eyes to see. God's a spirit. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have arms. But it speaks in this kind of language for us to understand. Same thing with the wrath of God. We, we have anger and wrath because God demonstrates that, but our expression of it is nothing like God's expression of it. And we could say this about really any of God's um, attributes or emotions, right? God is loving, but we don't love like God loves. God's love is infinite, isn't it? So we wouldn't want to compare God's love to our love, would we? Because our love, it's, you know, it's here today, gone tomorrow. Our love is quick to forget. Our love is quick to not forgive. Our love is imperfect. God's love is not like that. So we don't want to compare our love to God's love. Why would we, why would we want to do that with the wrath of God? His, his expression of righteous indignation is nothing like our wrath. We get mad because we're selfish. We get angry because something, somebody does something to us that we don't like. Uh, oftentimes, our anger is uncontrolled, and we don't have a control on our temper. That's not God. And so 
God's wrath is not uh, capricious. And by capricious is the idea of it's here today, tomorrow it's something different. You know, it's, it's fickle. That's the idea of capricious. God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is always consistent. And it is always measured by what is just and righteous. God's wrath is not self-indulgent or selfish. God's wrath isn't irritable. So God's wrath isn't like ours in that sense. God's wrath in Scripture is always a holy response to objective moral evil. It is always against sin. It is right for us to be angry at injustice and evil. But a lot of times when we get angry, it's not over, over truly moral evil. A lot of times when we get angry, it's just because somebody does something that we don't like. doesn't match with our preferences, our likes, dislikes. That's not God. God's wrath is always in response to that which is morally evil. So God's wrath is not like our wrath. So therefore, God's wrath is fully appropriate fully worthy of him because it's always measured by his justice. Is God's wrath cruel? Is, is God being overly uh, harsh in his expression of his wrath? And he makes the point that God's wrath is judicial, meaning that the wrath that is being expressed by God is expressed at, by a judge who is in conformity with justice. So he brings us to Romans 2, verse 5 and 6. Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, and God will repay each person according to what they have done. So, God's wrath is not cruel because God's wrath is measured in accordance with what we deserve. So in that sense, God's wrath is proportional. It is to what each person deserves. So God's wrath is always in association with his righteous standards of what is good, and it's always matching what the person deserves according to what they have done. Luke 12, 47 and 48. This is the words of Jesus. He says, The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, any judgment that is given to what people do wrong is always in conjunction with what they have actually done and also in conjunction with how much they know, how much they have been revealed, how much light they have received. And so it's always proportional. And he says the other reason why God's wrath is not cruel is because God's wrath is something that people choose for themselves. It is what people choose for themselves. And so any expression of God's righteous wrath against us is our own fault. Has nothing to do, has no blame whatsoever on God. 
John 3, 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So the light has come, hasn't it? John 1, 5 says that Jesus is both light and life. That light has come into the world, but people rejected it. And so therefore, when they stand in unbelief and God's condemnation hangs over them, they themselves are to blame because they have rejected the light that was given to them. And so he says, nobody stands under the wrath of God except those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose in all its implications, nothing more and equally nothing less. So everyone who receives the righteous wrath of God receives it because that's what they chose to do and to remain in unbelief and in darkness. And then he brings us to Romans, which of all of Paul's letters has more to say on wrath than any of his other letters combined. And so how does he describe the wrath of God in Romans? First of all, we have the meaning of God's wrath. And the meaning of God's wrath, as Paul describes it in Romans, is God's resolute action in punishing sin. So again, it is righteousness in response to sin is the expression of God's wrath. It is also the active manifesting of his hatred of irreligion and moral evil. So it is God working out his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness against the stubbornness and the evil that is in people. And so it's, it's flowing out of his character. It's an expression of his holy justice. And so that's the meaning of God's wrath. It is in conjunction with his righteous character in response to sin. And then he says in Romans, we also have the revelation of God's wrath. In fact, the letter of Romans basically begins that way in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he says that this revelation of the wrath of God is a constant disclosure, meaning that it is going on all the time. And I think what he means by that and what Paul means by it in Romans is that every person in their natural condition, born in sin and depravity, a con they are constantly in an abiding state under the wrath of God. And that's what Jesus says in John 3. Those who believe the Son shall not be condemned, but those who do not believe, they're condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the one only begotten Son of God. And John 3.36 says, those who don't believe in the Son remain under God's wrath. So the constant disclosure is that everyone in their natural condition is under the wrath of God. And so that means it's constant and also universal. The whole world. 
even to those that have not heard the gospel, the wrath of God is revealed against all of humanity. Why? Because we're all sinners. As Paul says in Romans 5, death passed upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned. So it's a universal disclosure and a constant one. It's an abiding one. And he says, how is this disclosure of God's wrath made? In other words, how, does it, how is it declared? How is it revealed? How do we know that God is angry with sinners, with us? One reason, he says, is because it imprints itself directly on every person's conscience. Built into us, Paul says, is not only a knowledge of God, he says that it's available to us in nature and in our own consciences, but even in our own consciences, our consciences will convict us when we do wrong. And we have this innate sense of uh, hanging under the, the watchful eye of a holy God who will condemn us for our wrongs. It's built into us, into every person's conscience. But also the wrath of God is made clear through the proclamation of the gospel and the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said in John that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment. And that happens, I believe, in conjunction with the gospel. So when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit, his ministry is to reveal to us our own sinfulness. And not only our own sinfulness, but our own judgment because of that sinfulness. So we have revealed to us the wrath of God, that we stand under the wrath of God through the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit with the gospel. But he also says, if we look around us, there are evidences to the active wrath of God all around us. And he says it can take many, many forms. Uh, a, an example of the wrath of God is the way that our world tends to break down. Everything is in a state of decay. What physicists and scientists call the second law of thermodynamics, right? The second law of thermodynamics is everything tends toward decay and destruction, which is the exact opposite of evolution, isn't it? So scientists say, yeah, there's a second law of thermodynamics, which means everything tends to be breaking down and falling apart. But somehow they still say, but evolution is making things better. I'm not sure how that fits in their, in their thinking, but second law of thermodynamics is everything falls apart. Your house falls apart. Your car breaks down. Uh, everything diminishes. Everything decays. Uh, we also see around us uh, the evidence of, of evil and of evil progressing even to the point of people being given over to a reprobate mind what Paul says in Romans 1. An example of the wrath of God being revealed is the growing prevalence of homosexuality in our culture. Some might think 
well, isn't that what God would judge people for? Yes. And also, it is an expression of the wrath of God itself. Because Paul says in Romans 1, that when people stray away from God and suppress the truth and unrighteousness, God gives them over to a reprobate mind to do things which should not be done, things which are contrary to nature, things like homosexuality. In other words, the more uh, depraved and reprobate a society becomes, it is not only uh, showing that it needs the judgment of God, it's showing that it has already received the judgment of God because a part of God's wrath is handing them over to deeper and deeper forms of depravity. And so he says these tokens of the active wrath of God, these signs, they're all around us in a broken, sinful, cursed world. If you want proof that the wrath of God revealed as a fact in your conscience is already working as a force in the world, Paul would say you need only look at life around you and see what God has given them over to. The more immoral evil that you see around that God has given people over to is an expression that God's wrath has already arrived and is already at work. But then he says Romans also teaches us not only what the wrath of God is and how it's revealed, but the fact that we can be delivered from it. And that's the great teaching of Romans, isn't it? That, yes, we're under the wrath of God, but we can be delivered from the wrath of God. And what Romans teaches us is that it's not the law that saves us. You can't save yourself by keeping the law of God. It's not religious rituals that saves us. None of that can save us. The only thing that can save us is justification through the blood of Jesus. What is justification? being declared forgiven, being declared righteous in God's sight. How does that happen? Only through the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross by which the wrath of God is propitiated. That's a word we don't use very much anymore, propitiation, but it's a biblical word, and Paul uses it in Romans to describe the way that God's wrath against sin is appeased. God's anger, righteous anger against sin is appeased. It is propitiated. How is that? It is by the cross work of Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. So he says in Romans 5, 9, Since we have now been justified by his blood, the cross work of Christ propitiating the wrath of God, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So he says, between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of the Lord Jesus. If we are Christ's through faith, then we are justified through the cross and the wrath will never touch us, neither here nor hereafter. So that Paul can write in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, it. That's an incredible comfort, isn't it? To, be, to go from feeling under the wrath and the anger of God to now being adopted into his family, knowing that the wrath of God will come on us no more. 
And then he finishes the chapter with just a reminder that this is a, a doctrine of Scripture that we should think on. We should meditate on it more. One, he says, this doctrine does need to be handled with care and with a sincere concern for the lost. And so it doesn't, it's, it's not appropriate for us to, to use this doctrine in a hurtful or hateful way toward the lost. But to think and meditate on this doctrine and to teach this doctrine with concern and with a zeal for God's mercy to the lost. So we have to handle it with care, but we cannot ignore it because to, to ignore the wrath of God or to deny it is to lose the gospel. The gospel doesn't make sense. The gospel has no meaning without the wrath of God. He says, if we would know God, it is vital that we face the truth concerning his wrath. Otherwise, we shall not understand the gospel of salvation from wrath, nor the propitiatory achievement of the cross, nor the wonder of the redeeming love of God. We can't know the gospel. We can't know the good news if we don't know that God is angry with us because of our sin. So he says we should meditate on this doctrine. We should think on it more frequently than we do. One, to remind us of sin's hideousness and God's abhorrence for it. Thinking on the wrath of God will remind us just how black our sin is and how much God hates it. And then to nurture within our souls a true fear, a true reverence of God. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. What leads us to that appropriate reverence and awe? This thought that our God is a consuming fire. That our God is angry towards sin. So thinking on the wrath of God should remind us how black our sin is and how much God hates it. It should give us a, a healthy reverence and fear of our God. And then also to lead us to fervent praise to Jesus Christ for having delivered us from the wrath to come. So thinking on the depths of our sinfulness, on what our sins deserve, and then thinking on what Christ has done for us, that leads to praise. First Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son, that is Jesus, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So, this doctrine should lead us to think more seriously about our God, more seriously about our sin, but then also to lead us to praise that God has delivered us from it through the Lord Jesus Christ.